Hi everyone, welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Nico Koria, Professor in Design Innovation and Director of the Institute for Design Innovation at Loughborough University London and Visiting Professor at Aalto University Finland. We talked to Miko about design, research, identity, interdisciplinarity and ethics. Miko introduces himself as a person who has never quite figured it out and is constantly driven by curiosity to understand what's around the corner. From here on, we discuss design innovation and its inherent interdisciplinarity. How does a designer use the co-creation tools differently from an anthropologist? How to give voice to the people who do not understand their input? How to work around different agendas and achieve a joint meaning? At the end, Miko reflects on the humane qualities that might bring a design practitioner closer to figuring out the unknowns. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Miko Koria. Hi Miko. Hello. Uh, Miko, um, I think this is the first time in my almost 100th episodes of doing this podcast where uh, where the most interesting bit started right before we started recording, <laughs> which is a question that I normally ask all of my speakers, uh, which is the marker of identity. And you ended up on this beautiful reflection of where you come from and where you go. Um, and I would love to um, pick it up from there and contextualize my first question in saying, um, tell us more about where you come from and where do you want to go? Well, if, if I if I look back, um, well, first of all, re- recognizing where I am now, I, I'm, I'm living in London and uh, UK is my 10th country of residence. So, mm. uh, you know, I'm not counting repeats. So... Um, and then maybe there's another 30 countries where I've done work on and off and, and uh, in, in all kinds of really interesting places. That uh, the, the, the nice thing about places is that they mark you one way or the other. And the longer you stay in a place, um, you, you become more marked by it. So, But then what happens, it's almost like a stratified, it's a layered approach. So you build up these layers as you go along and you tend to identify with your most recent place in some ways, because that's where you adjust to. So you, you get now, right now I'm working in, 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 a, in a very British and English environment here. And so I, I identify myself a lot with it. But at times, then you have these deep dives into all the other faces and all the other plural sort of uh, identities one has picked along the way. Mm. So... I, I think it's it's if, if I look at myself and, and I say if if you ask me what what am I then I, you know I'm a person of many hats you know I, I have a hat uh, on this and I and I have a hat on that and what I've grown really adept at is changing the hats very quickly mm. so I'm quite good at that and that may be that may be the 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 thing that I am I am good at <laughs> the changing jackal, hats changing hats and, and yeah. Uh, I'm a Gemini, so that's it's. It's. I mean, mm. if there's ever a sign that would be suitable for someone like this, it's a Gemini. You know? Yeah. So, so what do you think about your roots, Miko? Where are they? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I, I am very much a Finn. I come from Finland, um, 
but then I'm not, you know. Yeah. I, I also have roots in Brazil, very strong roots in Brazil. I, I, I live part of the year there, uh, I, um, and also lots of other places. So I am, uh, shall we say, a complex Finn, if you want to put it this way, <laughs> or, or, or a non-usual Finn. Or I, I tend, I tend to sort of think of myself as a global citizen in many ways. I do have roots, and, and those yeah. roots are great, and, and I love my roots. But I, I'm not particularly tied to them uh, in, in many ways. I mean, I can be if I wish to, but I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not inhibited yeah. by them. Put it this way. I'm not sure if, if you know, one of the uh, 30 countries that you're talking about happened to also be New Zealand. Um, but I lived in New Zealand for a few years, and I used to have the same conversation with um, with a group of Maori friends that I have, and they they found it incredibly. Um, impossible to think that um, you can be a global citizen or like you can have how I call them aerial roots, like not roots that go linearly down somewhere, but roots that kind of spread and taste the air um, and, and you end up uh, like a, how do you call it, like one of those biological cells that have stems that are thin mm. and invisible. So they, they found it very difficult because the, the concept of genealogy and the concept of like um, linear sense of identity and what ties you to your ancestors and your purpose for them was very important. So um, somebody that wears many hats to a certain extent wears no hat. Well, this is what but, people sometimes argue here also. I mean, typically, I yeah. remember Theresa May saying global citizens are citizens of nowhere, but I, I absolutely, totally disagree with that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, I mean, well, I... If, an interesting thought just occurred to me, if you, because you asked me to characterize me. So, you know, you, let's run to Deleuze and look at his rhizome. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit like a rhizome. I keep popping my head up in different places, and then I just continue burrowing. Uh, uh, and that might be an interesting analogy. I've never actually thought about that before, but now we bring it up. could be an interesting way to describe a person. Yeah, and, and one more thing, and then I'm, I want to move to, to my other question, is one of the things that I used to get, uh, for example, uh, provoked a lot when I lived in New Zealand was a question like, what is your, um, you know, every civilization or every culture has its myth of origins, like a myth of creation, a story that, that fundamentally tells the essence of what you are. So they asked me, so if you don't have roots in your ancestor, then what's your story? How do I know you? Tell me your story, your myth, your legend. <laughs> so uh, that was a, a way that for me personally, it ended up being a great exercise in thinking if I look back into my life, what would be a story that I can tell about myself to somebody that would get them to know me? This is me. If you listen to the story, you get me in my complexity, in my dif differences, you know. So I really like that. I'm not sure if you came across this type of comment as well. Mm, I've, been, I've, I've been to lots of places where, where, where people have had very strong senses of, of belonging. I mean, I, I, I think belonging is a really important thing for, for people. Mm -hmm. But you don't only have to belong to one place or, or one thing yeah. or, or one circumstance. You can actually belong to lots of different places and then you can shift in between. And I think... That is what really makes it rich. Uh, if we think of, you know, the meaning of life is is, is exploring different dimensions yeah. and, and uh, being, uh, you know, being a bit fluid, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think I think in that fluidity, there's a there's a lot of expansion of empathy also, and, and a lot of ability to uh, 
see see the world and its contradictions, but also the beauty in those. You can you can hold space simultaneously for so apparently contradicting things. So. Yeah, and, and it's not even very difficult to do. I mean, in the sense that you you because the contradictions are in life, and and uh, and if you live life, you will uh, you you will meet contradictions, and then you will have to just live them. Uh, you can't escape them, so you might as well embrace them uh, and, mm. uh, and and take it as it comes. So. Yeah. So so you you know when you talk about wearing different hats and kind of like this ability to blend and move it, it sounds really like a, the starting point of a of a story of an anthropologist uh, I'm an anthropologist but um I would say uh, what uh, what what drove me to your profile is also the position that you're inhabiting right now which you're a designer and um let me see the 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 director of the Design Innovation Institute in London how does this way of looking at the world work when you put the design um, and your current position uh, hat on? Well, I think we, we sort of reflect a little bit on, on what, what is design innovation for us, because I think that frames it really well. So some some schools and some people, uh, well, let's some universities, uh, because I'm a university person, so let me put those spectacles on. This is my third career. My third career was actually a, a practicing designer and an entrepreneur, and then I did a lot of humanitarian work after that, and then I became an academic, which just means that I'm old, essentially, you know. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but, but the big thing is there are schools which teach design, and, and they teach people how to do design. What we do with design innovation is we apply the ideas of design into different contexts. So design never exists by itself. I mean, if, if you if you look at design, it is, if you want to, it's creating an artificial world. And and uh, and I, I can see you. You wear headphones and you, and you you operate in a room and and uh, you're wearing some clothes and and you're embedded in in an artificial world. And and you're embedded in a world that is designed by by people. And so design is, is we we design things as human beings and then those things design us. Uh, they, they come back to bite or they come back to shape us. And this, this sort of ontological design is as very, very core of what we what we do in some ways. So the big idea is that at design innovation, at our institute, what we do is we're, we're always very concerned on how do you use design to to create the artificial world and, and especially we're a little bit idealistic in the sense that we would really want to create uh, uh, an artificial world that that sustains well-being human well-being and good life and uh, if you go back to aristotle this sort of this uh, this idea is that, that there is there is uh, there's a good way of doing things so we're about use of design in different contexts which inevitably leads leads us to reach with our little toolkit of design approaches, methods and practices leads us to other fields like social innovation or enterprise innovation or a mix of the two or, or you know, products or services mm. or, you know, whatever, operational models, organizations. And, and um, that, that then puts you in a position where, where you, you're always tying in with what other people are doing. So it is inherently interdisciplinary and it's inherently cross-disciplinary in the sense that it cuts across to other things. What it is not is transdisciplinary because you still try to you don't fuse your 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 mm -hmm. things with others, so it's 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 somewhere in between multi and interdisciplinary. I'd say uh, in in most cases, if it's light mm -hmm. touch, it's multi, and then it goes into inter. 
But transdisciplinarity is, is an interesting one because that kind of goes a step further still and, and uh, then you start to see a fusing of things. So we don't actually go there very much because we need to maintain also a designer identity to be able to, to, to sort of, um, to be able to maintain uh, an input into things. So you want to keep your own identity when you are crossing over because it's the, it's the discussion between identities, between fields, which I think is that mm. gray area, which is really interesting. And that's where innovations come from and that's where new stuff comes from. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that tension space between this is a hat and this is another hat and how do they kind of, uh, how do they work together? Yeah. So speaking to that, have you, have you worked with social scientists in, in some of your projects or with anthropologists or um, ever? Or, and, and if yes, how was that for you? Yeah, no, yeah, of, of course. I mean, um, designers have their own version of, of anthropology. They, you know, we, we do we use uh, similar tools to anthropologists in many cases because we are about the human factor. And, and uh, mm. the, the difference, perhaps, I mean, this is being extremely simplistic and, and perhaps please don't hit me on the head uh, when you see me the <laughs> okay. next time. But but in some cases, what, what designers wish to create are solutions while anthropologists may more be interested in understandings uh, about how things are. But designers wish to have influence over situations. So, so you, you create understandings because you wish to understand meanings in order to do something with it, in order to influence, in order to create, uh, in order to apply creativity and, and, and create uh, something new in this artificial world. So it's it's that desire to create new things which which drives design. And so what we do is we we position uh, you know our, our our version of anthropological tools. We're not anthropologists. We know that. But we we use tools, methods, and approaches which are kind of very mm -hmm. similar in many different ways. But we use them differently, and we have different aims for them. Does yeah. that make sense? I Makes total sense, and and I was I was interested in the in the interesting tensions that that these different perspectives create when they have to sit at the same table and work towards a project uh, that is the same. I once um, was was part of a of, I think it was either a panel or a conference where 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 somebody uh, uh, made the the link between saying you know if you look at what makes designers and anthropologists kind of like a bit like oil and water, but actually complementary is the fact that they, they, they approach the cycle of life and death together. So in order for the designer to create, they, they have to kill something to make room for something new. And, and anthropologists are really good at, at keeping things alive. They're, they're really good at kind of looking into realities and showing what is and the many, many multifaceted value that that thing has. So how do you how do you how do you make the the death process and the uh, life process kind of flow into each other and work together well? Well, the, the working together well is an interesting thing. So I've, I've written um, a fair bit with with different anthropologists uh, over time, and and um, and I remember many years ago, uh, probably some of the most painful writing processes have been with anthropologists because of this kind of a different outlook on 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 things, mm -hmm. where where you are uh, designers tend to be 
a bit prescriptive sometimes, and they they kind of as as I said, they're solution seeking. So the patience to to distill uh, the the data, the understanding, and, and that is is um, it's it doesn't stretch as far. And and uh, and, and to be honest. Um, in that sense, in some ways, designers are closer to the to the to what happens in the real world because I think this is just my personal view. Because what happens is that they 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 feel that good enough is good enough. You mm. kind of re, re, assert you've gotten to a certain level of understanding, and that's good enough to base your solutions on. It's not a hundred percent. It may not even be 80%. It could be 75 or 60, but it's still good enough to kind of propose doing new things, almost like experiments. So it's a kind of abductive nature of design, which I think is important. You try something and does it work? Or then you try something else. Does that work? Yeah. Or, so you, and, and you're, you know, shuttling between deduction, induction in an abductive way. And, and, uh, and that's why, you know, we, we tend to tie a lot, uh, of our, in you know, shall we say our, our scientific framing into sort of the American pragmatists and stuff like that, uh, which which helps because it is it admits that we can experiment with things and we can try things out before we get somewhere. Yeah, and you know, I can imagine that that for I can only speak for myself and not for my whole discipline. But I I, I remember the first time I, as an anthropologist, entered a project with a designer, and was was struck by this approach of inductive, uh, particularly since we were working on a project that uh, had to do um, not with technology design, but it, it really does have to do with designing um, um, a ser- service design, which mm-hmm. was like an yeah. interaction within a social group. Uh, or service design, and and then I, I felt myself that that it's like we need to understand this better before proposing a solution or designing an experiment because it's very easy. I thought at the time, I said, you know, if you already design something, you actually make it real for the people that have power, um, and they can implement a social tool that will then fundamentally change the the, the structure of that group. And so, if you don't understand it very well well enough then you, you enter into these processes of social engineering that, that feel felt for me at the time incredibly uh, unethical to approach if you don't understand them deeply and if you don't do them together with the people that that kind of um, are part of those social chains. So, um, yeah, uh, I, I, I found that very difficult. But then on the other side, you know, in my field now, Biko, I hear and I participate in a lot of conferences with technology that talk about ethics. You know, the ethics of AI, the ethics of how do you design uh, better coding? But then you, you, I sit with the same and, and many others of my colleagues and we just talk about it, but we don't do. And then you see, you know, you, you keep talking and you keep talking and you keep unpacking it. But where is the experimentation? Where is the, uh, and I think that's where I see so much uh, potentiality between the two worlds in kind of trigger each other on the right path together, you know? Yeah, you know, but the thing is, uh, uh, let me pick up on that right path together because I don't, I'm not sure there is a right path together. There are lots of different paths and, and, uh, which path you sort of end up is can somebody, sometimes be a real ad hoc process. I mean, certainly there are, there are perhaps better paths and, and less good paths to, to, to follow. <laughs> 
but but I mean, there, there, there may not be a single good path. And, and this is where the, the, the technologists really get it wrong, uh, because they, they, they don't see that, uh, you know, some of the more interesting things that come in, in, in from technology were totally unforeseen uh, by the people who created the technology. People use technology in very different ways, that many in very different ways than were originally stipulated by, by the people who did stuff. So, yeah. And that's the difficulty. So people, and, and of course, I mean, sorry to say, but people also lie. People never tell you the truth. Mm. They tell you, uh, so, you know, interviewing people, looking at how people do things, it only uncovers uh, the iceberg tip uh, uh, mm. in, in some ways. And you really have to be seeing how people do things and, and they need to be showing how things could be done and and this is this really requires experimentation the kind of co-creation and, and stuff like that and this is why i i don't fully believe in 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 sort of transdisciplinarity because you need to have somebody who introduces these sort of things into the conversation uh, that can be used to uncover. And if everybody's transdisciplinary, then where does where does that sort of injection of uh, disturbance come from then? You yeah, know, it, yeah. It, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I like this uh, word that you're using, disturbance, um, because it, it really... Uh, it does trigger me on this kind of like approach to you know just just go on that path and and then you you take a certain uh, left or you take a certain right or you move this kind of fluid way of solving a problem that you are uh, talking about um, and I wonder how do you approach um, ethics in that process or where where do you where do you see the role for ethics in that process of experimentation and, and creation? Well, well, this is it. I mean, I, I, uh, ethics is super important in what we do, and and uh, and in many organisations that I work with, um, it's been a very prime concern. I used to do work with the mm -hmm. Red Cross, and and uh, this whole idea of of say do no harm. Uh, so whatever you do, do no harm. That, that's kind of a rule number one um, uh, in 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 within. If, and, and that kind of underpins the whole organizational ethos of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Um, and that's really interesting because it, it's one of the only organizations that I do feel is, is completely, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's founded on ethical principles and, and they still somehow manage to keep them alive and well. Um, yeah. I think that ethics is a very tricky one because whose ethics are you talking about? How do you give voice to people who who don't really know what their voice is or cannot understand what is their inputs? Uh, why why is that? Why are their inputs required or desired or, or whatever? And at the same time, you you always are wondering, you know, even though people sign forms and do all kinds mm -hmm. of things and do do ethical clearances, you're always wondering at the ulterior motives of of doing things. So the moral high ground is a really difficult one and, and I think that the only way to really get there is to have a really, really open dialogic uh, conversation and exchange between people where, where, where you, you, you try to maintain a power uh, sort of equilibrium mm. Mm. which, which um, implies that people can come out of it at any point in time they desire and people are not being forced into things. So, in a way, ethics in practice 
is 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 much more important than the signed uh, disclaimers and everything like that. How how do you respect the other people in in the conversation or in the interaction, and and how do you take them into account? To me, this this came really what well, became really apparent because I've worked for many 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 years in in in, in very mm. poor uh, countries and in circumstances that are extremely challenging, uh, not only for the people who live there but also for the people who come from the outside. And, and those those situations sometimes uh, mm. I felt very uncomfortable at. You know, this yeah. almost like cultural tourism that happens. Uh, we let's go and look at the natives type of stuff that really sucks uh, in, in, in many yeah. But and, and, how do you yeah. do that, you know? so uh, Yeah, I think that that's beautiful what you're saying huh? about this calibration of power and, and transparency and consent uh, in the relationship between the researcher, the designer and those that um, are part of, um, of, of the project. Do you, um, do you approach this also into the products that are designed or the artifacts that come out of the project? Like thinking, how do you embed that sense of agency and negotiation of power also between the relationship of the object or the service and the user? Well, I mean, a, a good example is are some of the shelter projects that we did many years ago um, in health and, and, uh, and mm-hmm. with Red Cross and other things like that. So typically it's the difference between offering a house and, and then enabling somebody to build the house that they wish to build. I mean, I mean it's it's it this has this has been a discussion in development for as long as anybody remembers but really at the end of the day uh if 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 people wish to live in a certain way who are you to criticize that and and uh but the key issue is that you do need a, a roof on top of you and you de- do need protection from the elements you do need protection from from robberies or whatever in in this world and and the kind of you need the security also in terms of having ownership and and, uh, possession of the thing that it won't be taken away from you and Mm -hmm. but but all those things that come into to to play and and they need that that's uh, still yet the 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 designer the architect the donor agency uh the, the all of the different middlemen are the, the wholesalers who sell material they are not the people who are going to be living in that house it's the individual mm. who mm. actually wishes to be there and whose house it is thus this is why you 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 we, we uh, an example one of the s- systems of doing these things is that you hire a contractor, a contractor builds a house and hands over the keys. The other way to do it is to say, okay, you, you, this, this is a set of materials that you could apply uh, to your house and build your own house and we can get some expert help, you know, through qualified people to help you out in that. So one enables, one kind of delivers and, and uh, two completely different approaches. Yeah. So, what, what's the ownership of things that that people have? I think the, the, it boils down to the ethics of ownership um, in being able yeah. to voice how things are done. You know. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful bridge to my next question because I think how do you how do you handle this ownership uh, when it comes to building projects or designing alongside stakeholders or alongside businesses or or, or other kind of elements? Do you have to kind of uh, negotiate also this view, or or how do you together uh, produce something that that has this approach? Well, 
I think this is where meaning comes in, doesn't it? Uh, mm. So I, I, I try to shy away from activities or projects or undertakings that have unilateral meaning. <laughs> in other words, that are meaningful only for the researcher. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, there are lots of things like that. I mean, typically, you, you, I'm always reminded by, by the, the French anthropologist in, in, in West Africa and on the local people after 30 years say, should we actually tell them what we do? If you recall the, the discussions on anthropologists in Mali and, and, and other places like that, you know, referring to, to the early, early people in, in the 30s. The lip, and again, I'm not an anthropologist. So in some ways, the, 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 the idea of, of the researcher having the agenda to go there, you know, why? And, and, uh, what does, how does that benefit the local people? How is that not cultural tourism? Um, and, and, uh, so I, I think it, it starts from understanding what is meaningful to the people on the ground and, and what is mm-hmm. meaningful for them. And then kind of joining two meaning, me, two sets of meanings, um, and creating a joint meaningfulness, uh, of, of working mm-hmm. together. Now, that's not always so easy to do, but we did some work on the poor side of Sao Paulo some years ago, trying to understand what do really early stage entrepreneurs need in terms of support services around them. So we were interested in understanding the system. That was our, 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 our sort of research interest. And they were interested in getting support. And so we had a nice meeting of minds there because, because mm. at the end of the day, uh, it was they, they were want, wanting to understand. We all, only see this part of the sort of the support ecosystem. And, and oh, and they were saying, oh, there might be this part and that part because we were asking them, do you see this kind of a thing? Do you see that kind of a thing? Uh, and we, and, uh, so it was, it was, I think, of mutual benefit in many different ways, um, to, to work on these things. So if you can create a common, uh, meaning around things, mm-hmm. then I think things become suddenly very ethical and suddenly things become also very, Interesting because then people are willing to, to sort of uh, go out of their way to engage and do things and, and uh, kind of stay. If you only come into play with a single-sided agenda, like very often is, 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 uh, the, the, the issue of participation anywhere around the world. It's, you know, some, mm-hmm. some people talk about the tyranny of participation that we must now participate. And, and, uh, that, that that's a that's a failure uh, in itself if you if you if you go into that sort of a mindset so and it just means that you need to go down on the ground you need to talk to people you need to understand what they do and how they do it and and uh, and you need to spend time there in some ways so this is this is again where there's a touching mm-hmm. point with the with the more long term engagements designers don't stay that long uh, typically <laughs> they should Perhaps I, I wanted to ask you, um, I think what also plays an interesting role here is that what's the intention of, of the person that engages in, in this kind of project? Like for, for, from what perspective do they want to invest their time and energy? And, and you know, that intention in a way can, can, can also influence the sense of ethics of what comes out. And how do you, how do you see, for example, um, your projects that involve also stakeholders, such as businesses or, you know, third parties, um, that, that have a particular 
invested interest or lens into why they would like to uh, engage the citizens or the participants of, a, of an urban space into um, processes of design. There are so many different interests in this world. I mean, and there are so many ways to, to frame your interests. Typically, designers who who work in a normative space, who, who essentially are fulfilling uh, elite or a priori agendas and consensus stuff like industrial design that make, make products for existing companies or, or even service design, which I think in very many ways is fulfilling efficiency agendas of, 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 uh, of organizing work of existing corporations, which I think is fine as long as people understand that that's what it is. Um, so there, the, the, it depends on who sets the agenda. So because design is a service, in, it's framed as a service in many different ways, it usually uh, is a service provided to interested parties who have their own change agenda. I mean, design is always about change. I mean, whoever has heard about uh, old product design? <laughs> so you're always designing the new. So you're always designing the new things, the new artificial solutions, the new artificial world. And this is why Herbert Simon called it the sciences of the artificial. Uh, he's a positivist, but that's a different discussion. So, um, so in, in that sense, uh, the question is, whose agenda is design fulfilling? And under what terms? Uh, design has been very, very strongly represented also in, in, in politics, in activism and things like that. So the agenda is very different there. And it's, a, it's about dissensus, uh, it's about radical change and things like that. Design is also involved in social innovation. We, we, we work a lot with uh, organizations such, such as Citizens UK or other things who are social innovators, social advocacy organizations. And there the agendas are again very different. Now, the key thing that designers need to understand is whose agenda are they fulfilling? And if you do design research, it's no different. You know, whose agenda does this design research play into? Who, why is that agenda important? Uh, and I think this is, this is where the ethics of design come to play in some way also, is, is that you need to have an ethical stance towards those, um, those agendas. Not all of them are benevolent. Not all of them are, 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 you know, fulfilling the promise of good life or, or well-being in society. Uh, some of them are intentionally the way they are, and some of them are simply, simply stupid or, or uninformed or, or, uh, or uh, shall we say, full of unintentional consequences. Uh, and, and, yeah. and it's the unintentionality which is a really, really sort of, um, how should I say, the dangerous one. When we're doing something and we don't even recognize that we're driving at full speed into a cliff. And I would imagine these things are, are actually um, not that easy to observe or to see while, when you are engaged in a project. But how does that play out when you when you are working completely in different cultures that are like foreign to your own? It's almost like even reading somebody's agenda through the lens of a culture that is new or that you don't know. How do you how do how do you kind of handle this kind of new cues for you? Because you've worked um, and I'm just going to mention here in so many different uh, environments like 
Sri Lanka, Tanzania, Vietnam, Vanuatu, Europe, I mean, South America. How, how do you juggle that? Well, well, that, I think that's the big difficulty. Um, I, I think you can only really do do this by finding people who can act as intermediaries that that can help you out, that have understandings of different worlds. Um, I remember in Vanuatu, which is a very interesting society. By the way, if if if, if it's a very warm recommendation, it's one of the strangest places on this planet. So, very warmly recommend visiting there. It's a fantastic. Uh, uh, fantastic place but anyway so but it's so different um, that uh, we actually hired to hire a local king to work with us uh, somebody with a lot of authority somebody with a lot of perspective and a lot of uh, history who was also very well very well versed and, and educated in, in the western world so somebody who could be a bridge between these things it would have been very very difficult indeed for us to work we were working in schools and education at the time it would have been very difficult for us to work only us directly with the local communities uh, yeah because it's just there's no language you know and, and uh, yeah. even though you might talk still there is no deep understanding so I wonder what, um, give, give me some um, uh, tips or advice on how do you see when you need a bridge I would imagine language uh, and the absence of language is a, is a clear kind of cue out there that you need a bridge, you need a translator. But for things that, that aren't that easy to see that you need a bridge, how, how, do you, how, do, how do you figure that out before you're falling into the cliff? I, I'm not sure you can actually figure it out always because the, 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 these sometimes even between European countries uh, you, you need translators. Finland mm. and Sweden are quite close to each other for, for you know, cultural culturally and, and in terms we eat the same things and, and we talk about the same things and still we don't necessarily understand yeah. each other. So there are so it, it comes from the language. I mean, I'm a, I'm a strong sort of. A, uh, supporter of, of language, language as culture, this kind of thinking, you know, stuff like that. So, even though I mean, I speak seven languages fluently, I can I can I can work in 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 seven, but I I can only really write in four. But 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 uh, I still I still find it difficult to communicate in languages that are not really my. My fully my own. I mean, I consider that I'm trilingual in many ways, Finnish, English, and Portuguese. But outside of that, I really need translators all the time, even though I'm fluent in the language. So mm. I don't know. It's difficult. Yeah. So am I? Uh, tell me if I'm reaching with this. But it, it, what I what I'm what I'm hearing that you also use like translation or a translator to go deeper and find different type of bridges that you need that go beyond language, right? That, no, that of going. course, of course. I mean, that that's evident. It's not only mm -hmm. language is just a medium, and, and language, of course, frames our culture and what we do, and so on and so forth. Um, but I mean, it's it's the stuff that language also enables uh, in us uh, that is important. That's yeah. really nice. What about material culture? Do you do you use uh, like maybe I'm saying it specifically material culture? But are there any forms of uh, non-human translators or uh, immaterial translators uh, that you use? Well, I mean, many, many objects are, are, are actually boundary objects between people. And, and um, 
the material culture of the things that we have. Like I said, the ontology is, is interesting because we, we create things and then things yeah. create us. And, and, uh, and, and, yeah, and so exactly. it's a very, very, very strong impact uh, on, on, on the spaces and, and uh, the things, the products, the, the, the environments and the life that we have. So, um, it is it is very tricky to to somehow understand the, the complexity how things come together and any and, and I don't think you can po- you probably can't fully understand mm. it anyway and this is where you need to experiment you know a typical example uh, every year in the world you get you have soft drinks you have hundreds even thousands of different soft drinks that are launched and put on the shelves of of, uh, of stores and the best marketers in the world think about the marketing campaigns and and the, the you know best designers do stuff and, and everything else is there and still 95% or 99% of them fail they just don't attract. So what, what is it that actually, how does the desirability come out? How do we understand the desirability? How do, how do we understand the needs and wants of people, especially the wants? Uh, well, needs and wants, they come and sort of go together in many ways. So it, it is very difficult to do. It, it's to, 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 to understand the material materiality and, and, and that kind of stuff. It's not very easy at all. And I think this is where experimentation and building up sort of a, a, a track record of trying things out. And, and it, it works. That, that kind of stuff works because it builds up the understanding bit by bit. Oh, that worked. Yeah. Let's, let's use that. Oh, this didn't work. Oh, let's not use that. Or let's use that some, somehow else in, in something else or somehow else. Yeah. 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 I uh, I'm curious because it feels like we know we we are living as a as a society in a kind of a, this kind of time or like a vortex of change that is constant right now because of COVID, and it feels to me listening to you speaking, but also kind of looking into your work that 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 the time that we are seeing as something let's say out of the ordinary for your approach to design and your approach to doing things is actually quite common, right? Like how do you constantly deal with uncertainty find 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 opportunities in that uh, use it as a kind of a springboard for um for creativity so i just wanted to quote something from a paper of yours that i found interesting like you stress this co-creation and collaboration aspects of design and have written this really interesting paper on evolvability of design that says that we need to engage deeply with evolvability to benefit from ambiguity and the unexpected yeah, can can you tell me something about this? How are you experiencing COVID now? Or and, and you know, like, uh, tell me more about your approach um, about the future of design in this this interesting oh. mix. Oh dear, I mean, this is where where past things come and haunt you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, no, 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 no. It's fine, uh, but um, I, I know you have been doing your homework somewhere. This is interesting, actually. So uh, ambiguity is where it all starts because ambiguity can, you know, lots of people very feel very uncomfortable at ambiguity. So, um, but how do you deal with with ambiguity? How do you deal with the unknown unknowns? Yeah. I mean, it's it's easy when we have an unknown where we know, okay, we don't know this, so let's go and find out. Let's go to the library. But what if you didn't know that a library exists? 
and you, and uh, and, and uh, that so the the the, ambi- the really truly wicked ambiguity comes in is through the unknown unknowns, and and uh, this is where. The, the, and I, I think I'm a strong believer that uh, you can only really deal well with, with the unknown unknowns if you iteratively, by experimentation, through evolution, and this is where the evolvability comes to play, you try things and you see, oh, this kind of works, you know, is gives me a bit of an answer. And then you, over time, you, you iterate. This is also called trial and error, by the way. And and uh, and you try to understand it by doing things, by understanding things. I mean, this is how scientific discoveries have been made in the past, and it's no different. The, the, the fact that we we tend to clump all science into a positivistic framework, I, I think that doesn't do justice to some of the intuition and some of the real creativity that hard science has had behind it, uh, and, and uh, which is fantastic. And and. Uh, so you need to evolve with the stuff. Your 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 understanding evolves together with your knowledge, and that bit by bit transforms the unknown unknowns into simple unknowns. And then you suddenly start to say, "Okay, I don't know that, but I know how I can get to know." Hmm. And this and is what, this, what this is where the evolvability comes into play. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 and. Um what what is it requi- what does it require of the individual to walk that path miko i think you need to have a really open mind and i and i think you need to be quite comfortable at at, at ambiguity that that you, the fact that you don't know something that doesn't bug you too much for for that you need to have a really good self esteem and 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 because if you, if if you think that you know everything so you need to have a good self esteem but a lot of humbleness because, uh, I, you know, I don't know this, but I'm willing to admit that I don't know this. Uh, uh, at the same time, I think I can figure it out. Uh, I will try. And if I can't figure it out, I say, well, I couldn't figure it out this time around, maybe sometime in the future. And uh, so we need adults in the room and, and, uh, <laughs> and many, many people who have a good mix of self-esteem plus the recognition that they really they need to be humble about it. They are some of the most interesting people in this world, and one should look at trying to follow their example and, and their their sort of way and, and check them out and, and try to understand them. There's enough arrogance in the world. We don't need any more of that. There's enough of narcissism in the world. We don't need that. There's enough psychopaths and sociopaths. We don't need them. They're there. But the real, real sort of driving force in life comes from people who, who, who are both have a good self-esteem and are both humble at the same time. That's beautiful, Miko. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of cautious with the time, but I, I just want to throw you just one last question for those of our readers out there that has have found your answer as inspiring as I have and share my question. Uh, let's say, you know, you you don't necessarily have uh, a high self-esteem or, or, or enough humbleness, but you it's for you, it's not an unknown unknown. It's an unknown. How do I cultivate that more in myself? Uh, do you have any advice for that? Well, I think uh, the thing is, there are you, you, you can never be the best 
in the world because there's always somebody who's smarter than you and, and who's better than you in this and better than you in that. It's it's enough that that you you're good enough, you know, and then you you are you are uh, you you try honestly to do things in in a in a good way. I think that designers, many designers, have a lot of empathy. Uh, around it. So I think things start with empathy. If if one can develop the empathetic side in one's uh, character one way or the other, that kind of helps out because it helps you to put yourself in the shoes of the other. And uh, and that starts to create all kinds of interesting communications and interactions that will then create good things for you. So start with empathy, I would say. That's beautiful. Yeah, and and I've never thought about it like that, that, you know, uh, an empathy with the other can also trigger uh, empathy towards yourself and self-love, which is uh, ideally the the process of, of, of building self-esteem, you know, when when that self-esteem is uh, it's not there yet. I, I really am I'm, I'm deeply thankful and grateful for for taking this hour with me. And, and I hope you know, our listeners has fo- have found it as um, as inspiring as I have. Well, I mean, it, it's been fun chatting to you. Thanks, Corina, for for inviting me. Thanks for having me. The um, uh, it's um, I like these kinds of chats. I mean, uh, when we were setting this up, you asked me a couple of questions, and then I, I said to you, I recall that. I'm not really a firm believer in answering questions because I never know which way the conversation will take. So. I hope that you've 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 had uh, uh, you know you've had an interesting conversation because I certainly have. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, I have the same approach. So again, uh, thank you, and uh, no, have a nice flight to Sao Paulo. Well, thank you very Boa much. Boa noite. Até logo. Até logo. Yeah. Bye then. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.